0: Rick Elias is a plane crash survivor, TED Talk speaker, and CEO of Red Ventures, a multi-billion dollar company. On this show, you'll hear conversations Rick feels lucky to have had with leaders, athletes, and innovators, plus three things you can learn from each. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. Today, we'll hear from astronaut Chris Hadfield former commander of the International Space Station, first Canadian to walk in space, and first, to our knowledge, astronaut to cover David Bowie while in orbit. Chris and Rick talk about leadership under insanely stressful situations, machines taking over the world, and humans living on the moon. This is Three Things.
1: Welcome to Charlotte. Welcome to Red Ventures. It is great to have you here. It's, it's a delight to be here. and Thanks for making time to chat. So I'm gonna get right to it. Um, I was lucky enough to be on that plane that landed in the Hudson River. I am very grateful that I had that experience, but I would have not chosen it as a choice. You, you took a profession where that was part of the opportunity set of what outcomes could happen. Tell us a little bit more about how you got to decide to be an astronaut.
2: Yeah, what, uh, what Sully did that day when he lost both engines and, uh, and made all the right decisions and where everybody should have died, but because of the things he'd done during his life. The, the preparation, the seriousness with which he took his profession, he saved. Nobody even got hurt. I mean, hopefully you didn't get hurt, but that is a miracle. Uh, but it was not a random thing. It was the direct result of him changing who he was to be able to do something extremely difficult. And when I was a little kid, I watched the first two people walk on the moon, and I thought, man— that's the same thing. I want to try and turn myself into somebody who can do what Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin just did. So I started thinking about it when I was 10 and I learned to fly when I was a teenager, like, like Sully did, and then I went to various universities. I joined the Air Force, became a pilot, and then went on to fly fighters, uh, flew F-18s, then did exchanges uh, in the States with the Air Force, the Edwards, and then and then at Patuxent River uh, as a test pilot with the Navy, and after all of that and some pretty interesting flying experiences along the way, I got selected in, in uh, the 1990 new class of astronauts and flew in space three times. Pretty amazing.
1: Pretty amazing. In the can, do you remember when you watched you know Neil Armstrong walking the moon? Where were you? I was old enough that it was a really significant event in my life because I was just
2: turning 10 that summer of 69. It was July 20th, and it was late at night, but my parents recognized not only was this an important historic social event, but they knew that I was really interested because I'd been watching it in the news, and we didn't have a television because it was a little tiny old summer home, you know, out in the middle of nowhere on an island, but a neighbor had a television. So my older brother and I and my parents, we all piled into this living room. The, the living room was packed with people because everybody knew this was pretty incredible. And uh, I remember with sitting on this old sofa with my back against the wall, my brother jammed in next to me. We were probably punching each other. But in between, we were watching Walter Cronkite talk about something amazing that was happening there in front of us. And to go outside afterwards and look up at the moon, I, I have never looked at the moon the same since because it's not just something in the sky, it's a place where we've been, where, where people go. And that permanently altered my own perception of what I might be able to do within my own life. Something that Neil and Buzz were doing, a billion people were watching, but it fundamentally changed my own perception of, of what I might be able to do as a little kid growing up in a different country. Pretty, pretty significant day.
1: Amazing. What does the moon look like from space?
2: depends how close you get. (laughs) If you ask Neil and Buzz and the other 10 guys who walked on the moon, they'd tell you it's dusty. And like, it's more like broken glass, because there's never be any weather. And if you kick it, you know, it it goes so far, because it's only got one sixth gravity. If you asked Mike Collins, who was orbiting the moon, when Neil and Buzz were walking on the surface, he was the loneliest man in human history, all alone on the other side of the moon, where, where the moon was blocking his view of the world. You can imagine having that perspective of the, of huh. the moon. For me, I've been around the world 2,600 times or so, and that means I've watched 2,600 extra moon rises and moon sets. And what I would do on the spaceship is, it's hard to tell where the moon's coming up because it doesn't have a big glow like, like the sun does, but I would notice where the moon came up and then I'd take a little grease pencil and put a mark on the window and I'd set my watch for 90 minutes, because that's how long it takes to come around. And then I would get myself all ready and have the camera sitting there, wait, and I would start taking pictures just on time, and then the moon would come up. And at first it's distorted by the atmosphere, sort of like a blob, and then it, it goes into the yeah, shape of the cool. moon. cool, that is cool. The coolest part is, it looks like the world is above you, so it looks like the world is giving birth to the moon. Every single time, like a little egg is coming out of the world, like a little secret. That's and so it was, it was a little delight every time.
1: You know, I, I have never met an astronaut. So, uh, not, I, not it, yet. Today. So, <laughs> yeah, that so is far. good. Today was uh, an important day. But I've always been curious from your point of view, an educated point of view, are you surprised that we have not made further progress, or do you think this is about the right pace given kind of that as the anchor event?
2: I'm amazed at the pace. Like delighted at the pace. When I was born, no one had ever flown in space. Like spaceflight's younger than, than I am. And, I mean, the very first satellite we ever put up was only in 57. You know, that's not very long ago. We've done everything we've done in space. The stuff we just take for granted, you know, weather forecasting and GPS and telecommunications and understanding the Earth and the universe around us, the Hubble telescope, all of that stuff has all happened basically uh, since I was born. I mean, it, it's new. And the rockets we're working on right now, the improvement in technology is such that it's it's like ramping up now. It's a accelerating
1: there's a there's a new telescope going up in the next couple of years right uh, there's, there's a
2: huge one the James Webb yeah the, the Hubble's getting old you know yeah. we launched it a long time ago you know yeah. and it's it's uh, it's reaching the end of its life but it's still hanging in there it's got some limitations obviously it, it's got old computer technology and, and and some of its gyros are failing the new ones named after a, a great research uh, scientist called James Webb it's the James Webb telescope but we're taking a big chance with the James Webb because we're not going to keep it close to the earth. Oh wow! The trouble with the Hubble is the world's in the way, so we're putting James Webb way out in space so that the world's never in the way. Trouble with that is we can never go fix it. So I sure oh. hope we get everything right because and, and it has these big arms that have to
1: unfold oh, and oh, all yeah. these things, right? Yeah, so yeah.
2: it's not a it's not a simple thing. So it's a big, expensive roll of the dice. And and the Hubble, we went back up several times and upgraded it and improved it and, and fixed some problems. But it's not the start or the end of anything. And Hubble. Gosh, it taught us the age of the universe, and when any telescope on Earth looks at something, if
1: we really want to see what's there, we get Hubble to look at it, and tell us what's truly
2: there, it's an amazing thing.
1: What what do you think will, let's assume that is a successful deployment, what do you think we're talking about in 10, 20 years?
2: You know, one of the biggest questions, I think, that every, you know, since some shepherd 10,000 years ago was with his sheep nearby, was laying on his back looking up at the sky, the question is, man, are we alone or not? I, you know and we don't know the answer to the question we imagine ufo's and stuff all the time and our science fiction movies they talk about aliens but the only life we've ever found is from earth so far we're looking across the solar system but what a huge telescope allows us to do is see planets around other stars with more and more clarity and really get an understanding of of the rest of everything else. We've lived in our the end of this tiny little alley for our entire existence, and we think that's the universe. And the bigger our telescopes are, the more we start to understand the real perspective and just how small we are. And maybe someday we'll even figure out how to travel not just to the moon, but Mars and out to the end of the solar system. And if we can figure out how to harness gravity, maybe someday even further than that but it all starts first with just being able to see and imagine, and that's what our telescopes do for us.
1: You know, you gotta believe that if there is such thing as life as we know it somewhere in space, they're probably looking too.
2: Yeah, and no one knows the answer. With what we've seen so far, we can sort of guess how many planets there are, and it's an incredibly huge number, like a septillion, you know, billion, trillion, quadrillion. But if you look at Earth, the oldest fossils we can find are four billion years ago. So there has been life continuously on earth for 4 billion years. So pretty, and it's tough, but intelligent life, there's no evidence that we can find at all that there's been intelligent life before us. So my gut feel is that maybe life is common, but intelligent life is rare. And that makes it even more important, I think, for us to recognize the responsibility we have to ourselves and to taking care of this ball that we live on and, to, and to how we start to explore and everywhere else.
1: How many years before people live in space?
2: Actually, uh, we started living permanently in space 18 years ago. Uh, we have had people permanently living on the space station since the fall of 2000. But it's sort of like if, if you took a ship off the coast of North Carolina here and had people go live out on that ship. You know, you're not, you're not in a new land. You're just kind of testing everything. And that's what the space station is. It's, it's the chance to test everything. But I think we'll be living on the moon pretty soon. Uh, We just discovered huge water reserves in the north and the south pole of the moon. And if you got water, then you have something to drink. You have oxygen. You have hydrogen. So you have fuel. You have air. So that makes it easier. And it seems crazy, right, living on the moon. You know, how could we do that? Why would we do that? We only started living in Antarctica. Nobody even got to Antarctica until a little over 100 years ago, and now thousands of people live in Antarctica. No one got to New Zealand and Hawaii till about 800 years ago. That's Nobody. crazy, that is crazy. And that's not that long ago. Right. No one got to North America till 18,000 years ago. We could not live a lot of the places we live without technology. No one could survive a night in Antarctica, except the technology is good enough that it can keep us alive. So the real question about living on the moon is just when will the technology get good enough and the costs get down low enough that it becomes practical and just part of normal life. And with the rocket technology and miniaturization and digitization, it's becoming way more possible, not just to explore like the 12 guys have walked on the moon, but to actually start living there. And I think you and I will both be alive a long time watching people live on the moon. I think that's coming pretty
1: soon. What's left to do for you personally in space?
2: You know, the, the pace of invention is accelerating. and. That means for me there, there's just huge opportunity it's just just to try and keep up but also you need to rethink the way you're doing stuff the way we went to the moon in the 60s doesn't make any sense now yeah, at the yeah, time yeah, it was yeah, the yeah. best we had yeah. but now I mean I'm working with a team of folks that I'm pretty sure we can put something on the surface of the moon for about 6 million bucks and I mean that's a lot of money for most folks but you know you can buy a car that costs 6 million bucks you know so if we can get access to the moon for that lower cost then it opens up the moon just to be a regular part of human commerce and human experience. When Canada was first looked at a few hundred years ago, the people in Europe described it as a few acres of snow and rock (laughs) because that's what it looked like. And sort of like how we look at the moon right now, a few acres of dust. But who knows what's on the moon and what that's going to mean for us as a collective moon-Earth system. And when the transportation cost gets down low enough as it is now, that's a lot of what I'm working on is is what should we be doing with the technology as it's ripping along in order to uh, make the most of it for humanity? I, I run a technology incubator up in Toronto that is purely looking at space technologies. It's it's right on the early time of that, but I think it's the, the important time to start really looking forwards.
1: How um, fascinating. Yeah, you know, It's I interesting. Really you, interesting yeah. If you think about um, data sets and what a, a new telescope like that will do in terms of providing data sets and then machine learning and its ability to it's yeah. a much bigger computational power and just kind of churn through that data. you got to think that all this things compounding into some massive accelerated discoveries, no?
2: Oh, and looking back at the Earth also, there, there's a company that I work with called Planet that right now maps every place on Earth every single day huh. down, down to uh, like six feet. So they are imagine the data set they're building. So if they looked here at Red Ventures, since you know they were just turning sod here not too long ago, you could watch every single day of what has happened here, there's been a picture taken of every single place on Earth. So if we want to understand how things change, both naturally and man-made huh. on our planet, that data set is now permanently being built, and they have like 230 satellites. Maybe that settles do. the climate uh, well, change
1: debate. Well, we need that information. <laughs>
2: you, you can't just have an argument with no facts. Exactly. You have, you have to build up the data set. But you're right. The data barrage and management using artificial intelligence, that's that's absolutely critical so that we can not just be overwhelmed by it, but actually pick the stuff out of it. That it's going to help us make good decisions, and, and what does that mean? And the telescope, like James Webb, looking out for pure science. But boy, the the stuff that's looking back—that just that just tells us about this big ship that we're all living on, and and what we ought to be doing next.
1: Gosh, it's uh, you know, we, we think that what the internet has done, or all this stuff, has been really kind of so dramatically different than the last hundred years. Just a hundred years from now. What the people are going to talk about sitting like oh, this. It's going to be.
2: But you don't have to look very. I mean, Gutenberg with, with the printing press. Yeah. You know, up until then, every book basically had been handwritten. By 1500, there were two million books printed. What it did was it democratized information. Suddenly, you didn't have to take somebody else's word for everything. You could have a- hundreds of books of your own if you wanted. And that was sort of the internet of the day. And it drove the huge age of discovery there with Henry the Navigator and starting to explore the whole world. And this technology we're at now is doing the same thing. And we just have to decide how to not let it run us, but use it as a tool with, with the constant, in my mind, underpinning of how do we improve the quality of life for as many people as possible in a sustainable way. How can we use all of these inventions to do that thing? And, and we're doing a pretty good job, but we make mistakes and we got a lot of work to do,
1: but it's a pretty incredible time to be doing all these things. That is neat. You know, I, uh, I don't wanna misquote, but this theory that we should eventually move all our manufacturing, all our pollution, is, uh, uh, what's your reaction to that?
2: The biggest thing that we don't understand is gravity. It sounds crazy, but only a few hundred years ago, we understood electricity. You know, it's been around forever, but suddenly we realized that if you can strip the electrons off of an atom and make the electrons move around, you have electricity. In 1900, 3% of American homes had electricity. 3%, that was in 1900. There are people alive from 1900 still, you know? So electricity has revolutionized life for almost everybody around the world, because we figured out how to harness something at the atomic level. Gravity is at the subatomic level, smaller than an atom, the pieces of the proton and the neutron. But we don't know what causes it, just like we didn't used to understand what caused or how we could move electricity. If we can figure out how to control and manipulate gravity, it sounds crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But if we can figure that out, that'll change everything. Because then when you're talking about, well, why don't we move stuff somewhere else? Suddenly the moving of things to other places becomes trivial. And then maybe, right now we need big rockets and they make a lot of pollution on their own and that's not an efficient way to move stuff out to space. It's only for high value items. But we're just still in
1: the nascent stage. You know, We're just getting going at it. Think about it, machine learning may also be the way that you solve that could well be. Yeah. yeah. All right. Like I want, that. I want to pivot before we run out of time. I can sit here forever yeah. and learn. So I, <laughs> okay. I really appreciate this. Um, let's talk about a little bit about leadership. All right. Right. Tell me, you know, you've, you've lived in some very tense situations where you mm-hmm. were responsible for lives that right. your decisions matter. Sure. What, what has that taught you about the responsibility of leadership? most of the time you hardly need any leadership because things are just
2: sort of ticking along. And a lot of people claim to be leaders when anybody could lead, right? Mm. But you only actually need leadership when things are tough, when things are going badly. And that's when we absolutely need leadership. There's all different forms of leadership. You know, I'm sure you've studied them. I've studied them, how to lead effectively, how to influence people's behavior. To me, the very essence of trying to be a, a good leader, number one, is to change yourself first. You have to become competent. You have to put yourself in a position where you have a decent chance of making good decisions. If people are gonna trust you, then you can't wait until the things are going badly until you start to try and gather the skills that are gonna let you be a good leader. So the quiet time is where leaders should be being made and developed and practice and try and practice under safe circumstances. That's why the army does drills. It's why astronauts live in simulators. It's so that when things really go wrong, that you have a, a pretty good chance of making the right call. And then of course, if you're being effective as a leader, then once you've taken care of yourself, okay, I've got my own act together. Next is we need a unified definition of success. What does perfection look like for our team? Because almost every decision your group's gonna make is gonna be made individually. People are gonna make all their own little calls every minute, every day, and it's gonna move your ideas forward. If everybody doesn't have a shared understanding of what success looks like, then they're not gonna make the decisions that pull you that way. So a shared definition of success, and then give people the skills that they don't have yet. Any skill that is on my team is one more chance that we're going to be able to succeed together as a group. And then the last for me, the the final piece, when I was getting ready to command the spaceship, I got my act together and then we defined and then we worked as a team. The last is constant iterative communication feedback because people come from different languages and cultures and whole different reference sets. And so how are you doing today and how, how, are we, how are we getting close to what we're trying to do and, and what's bugging you and, and what, don't, what don't you have the skills for? The constant chance to feedback as a group as to, as to how we're moving forwards. And through all of that, I mean, you can command a spaceship That's if amazing. you get all those things That's right. Amazing. But occasionally the ship catches fire or has a pole lunch in it. And then, then you just need to be a, a serious autocratic leader. This is what we're doing right now.
1: It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you listened to the tape of Captain Sullenberg, but, you Mm -hmm. know, he's communicating with the tower in Teterboro and, you know, tells Teterboro I'm going in the water and Teterboro still wants to communicate with him. And he completely goes, all right, I'm going, I'm going rogue here. I've I've (laughs) talked to Sully about it. And, you know, the, the best
2: part of what he just from a verbal thing there was when he told people. Brace for impact. I don't know if you remember, but that's what he said to you. So it's uh, the
1: only three words he said. Brace for impact.
2: But he had thought of that in advance because he had thought, if I say, if I tell him, hey, we're all going in the water, people would have been panicking for their life jackets. Yeah, and yeah. But everybody understands what brace for impact means. You, you know That's instinctive. And that didn't happen accidentally. He recognized, I'm the captain of this ship. I'm the leader of this. And... My responsibility is to the safety of those people, so I need to give them something that is going to optimize that. And he did that work when it was quiet, not after he'd swallowed two geese and was now going into the water. And I have huge respect for
1: for the you seriousness what? with which he prepared. I uh, I got a chance to talk to him oh, great. that afternoon or late afternoon as we were all standing around. And here he is, completely still dressed in uniform, right? And I, I go as a as a humble human being to just thank him yeah. for being prepared and for doing what he did. And you know what he said to me, and it's something now that I repeat a lot when people thank me for things. He said, I was just doing my job. Just
2: doing his job. And and that's how I think every leader should look at it.
1: Yeah, listen, I I could stay here for hours. This has been a a truly uh, remarkable privilege. So thank you, thank you for your time.
2: Really nice to talk to you, thanks.
1: Thanks again, Colonel Chris Hatfield. So here are the three things I learned today. Number one, while progress since we landed on the moon 50 years ago may seem slow, we're actually in the precipice of some remarkable things, like the ability to harness gravity and actually being able to live on the moon. That is amazing. Number two, for all the fears around computers taking over the world, it will be computational power and machine learning that will provide the missing piece for space exploration, opening new opportunities for the human race. I can't wait to see where that takes us. And number three, and what will stick with me the most, is what we learned from Neil Armstrong and my personal hero, Captain Sullenberger, around leadership. True leadership is about preparing for the inevitable time when things will go wrong.
0: Next time on Three Things, NFL superstar Larry Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening.